Well, let's come back to the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at a story that is familiar to many of us. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18, is the story of the rich young ruler. Let's read that account, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Father, you are the God of the impossible. And so we come to you, Father. To do what without the help of your spirit would be impossible. Give us understanding of your word. Your word itself tells us that natural man cannot understand spiritual things, Father. We desire to understand spiritual things this morning. As we look into this word, which is your word. Let us hear your voice. Speak to us, Father. And cause us to profit from the hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, once there was a young man without a worry in the world, except one. He was a rich young man. We don't know how he became rich, but he was rich. Being a young man, perhaps he inherited his wealth, or perhaps he was a Young Elon Musk, an entrepreneur who had a gift for taking an idea and making it a reality. It's possible that he made his fortune in real estate, since Mark gets a little bit more specific about the nature of this man's riches, saying that he owned much property. We don't know how he became rich, but he was a rich young man. This man was not only rich, he was also a man of some authority. Matthew simply refers to him as someone. Mark calls him a man, but Luke describes him as a ruler, which means he's most likely some kind of civil magistrate. 
And so we know that he's a wealthy man and he is a man of some stature in the community. He's got some degree of power. To any outside observer, it would seem like he's got life by the tail. He's got everything he could desire and his future is bright. As we said a moment ago, he is a young man without a worry in the world except one. But that one thing that he worries about is keeping him up at night. He's a confident young man. He believes that he can handle anything that this life throws at him, but he's not too sure about the next life. One day, that young man went to see a carpenter from Galilee named Jesus. And he went to Jesus with a question. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the conversation which follows must have made quite an impact upon the disciples who were there to witness it because it was passed down in the church for years, first verbally and then in writing as each of the synoptic authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this account in their Gospels. There's a great deal to admire about this young man. Had we met him and had the opportunity to observe his life, I think we would have concluded that he was a man of good moral character. He did suffer from an important self-delusion, but he was a man determined to obey the law of God to the best of his ability. It seems that he had a degree of humility as seen in the fact that he was willing to come to Jesus and ask the question. He's willing to admit that although it might look to others like he has the perfect life, he's admitting that he does have a need. He knows that. We can also admire him, I think, for his understanding. And he clearly doesn't understand everything, but he understood something. He was asking the right question for the right reason, and he certainly comes to the right person. He was a lot like other Jewish people in the first century who believed that after they had obeyed the laws and the commandments of God, that there was still one thing, some great, good, righteous, virtuous thing that they needed to do. And if they could only find out what that one thing was, If they could only do that, it would guarantee them entrance into heaven. And this rich young man comes to Jesus with that question. What is this one thing that he needs to do which will gain him entrance into heaven? And so there were a number of things that this man got right. But there were very important things that he got wrong. First, he was wrong to think that there was something he could do which would gain him entrance into heaven. And second, he was wrong to think that if he was shown what that was, he would be able to do it. That's a problem as well. So he comes to the Lord Jesus with this crucial question. And Jesus gives him an answer which confused people over the generations. The question seems simple enough. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
But when you read the story and when you read what Jesus says back to him, it appears that either Jesus doesn't understand the question or Jesus doesn't know the answer to the question or Jesus just doesn't want to give him a straight answer. Now we know the first two options are not correct because there's nothing Jesus doesn't know and doesn't understand. But when you read the question and the answer, they don't really seem to go together. Verse 18 gives us the question, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And verse 19 gives us Jesus' answer, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that's confused people into thinking perhaps that Jesus means something like, God is good and you shouldn't call me good because I'm not really God. Well, that's not what he means. That's, in fact, just the opposite of what Jesus means to say. Jesus is taking the word good literally. The young man had called him a good teacher. He said it as a way of being respectful, but he wasn't really thinking about the meaning of the word when he said it. And that's exactly what Jesus wants him to do. Jesus knows why he's there, but it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't go to that question first. The young man had thrown this phrase, good teacher, out as kind of a throwaway line. But Jesus focuses in on that to begin with. Here's what Jesus is saying. When you call me good, understand what you're saying. If I am truly good, in the sense, in the true sense of that word, it is because I am not merely a good person. It is because I am God in human flesh. What do we find elsewhere in Scripture? No one is good, no one is righteous. So Jesus is turning that phrase back on this rich young man. Say, think about what you're saying here. If what you say about me is true, and it is, then the result is, I am God. Jesus doesn't mess around when people come to him like this, does he? He does this again and again. You'll remember another man who came to question Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. And in his gospel, John makes it a point of telling us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And we can understand why. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He had stature. He had position. He knew that many of his fellow Pharisees were not too crazy about this itinerant preacher who was turning things upside down. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and you remember how he begins the conversation. He begins with flattery. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Jesus responds, and his response is reminiscent of his conversation with the rich young ruler. The questioner spouts what we might consider to be this throwaway line or or flattery, and Jesus either ignores it completely, as he does with Nicodemus, or he uses it for his own purposes. 
When Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, how does Jesus respond? He ignores everything that Nicodemus has just said and goes right to the heart of the matter. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Has nothing to do with what Nicodemus had just said. But Jesus knows what's important. He's not much for small talk. So when this young man comes to Jesus and starts the conversation with what he thinks is no more than a respectful greeting, Jesus turns it into a theological lecture on the attributes of God and human depravity. Before the young man can even make an answer to what Jesus has said, Jesus plunges right on. You know the commandments. He's referring to the Ten Commandments, of course. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. See, that's another part of the story that seems strange to us. Especially if we understand the gospel. This fellow wants to know how to get to heaven. And in response, instead of telling this man, as we might expect, repent and believe. Jesus brings up the Ten Commandments. And it sounds as if Jesus is saying that the man can be saved by keeping the law. Rather than by grace through faith. So what's really going on here? Well, we need to understand a little bit more about how Jesus operates. This guy wanted what so many people want. He wanted a list. He wanted a checklist so he could go down the list and check off every item and make sure that he was okay. Give me a list of things I need to do to make sure I go to heaven. Give me a list and I'll check it off. Do this, 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 and when I get to the bottom of the list, I'll know I'm okay. That's, that's my ticket. So when I get to the pearly gates, I'll just show them my list, and they'll let me in. That's how people think, and that's how this man thought. And Jesus says, fine, you want a list? I'll give you a list. Here's my list. It's called the Ten Commandments. You see, once again, Jesus is in control of the agenda. The man wants a list. Jesus wants the man to see his own heart. And the way to show people their heart is to show them the law. So Jesus takes him to the law because the law is a mirror which shows us our true selves. He says, look, you want a list? Here's my list. Keep the Ten Commandments. If you keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, you'll be just fine. I used to have this conversation with my dad. It was so frustrating. I'd sit there and I'd share the gospel with him. And we'd be talking and I'd be speaking and and talking with him about the grace and mercy of God and, 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 and how we come to God through faith in Christ alone 
and not because of our works. And my dad would be sitting there nodding his head, yeah, 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 yeah. Because he's, he's not going to argue with his pastor son over something like that. And then the conversation would start winding down and he'd say something like, yeah, and if you just keep the Ten Commandments, you'll be fine. But dad, you haven't, and I haven't. Now what? And that's what he's trying to get through to this man. But this man is as blind as my dad was. Look at what he says. Jesus tells him, Here are the Ten Commandments. You know them. Verse 21, the man says, All these things I have kept from my youth. Now that might have been the most sincere statement in the world. But it is also delusional. He was sincere. And if... He remained in this condition. His sincerity would send him to hell. It's possible to be sincerely wrong. And this guy was sincerely wrong. If anyone says, I have kept the Ten Commandments perfectly from the beginning of my life until now, you automatically know two things about this person. Number one, they don't know anything about the real meaning of the Ten Commandments. And number two, they really don't know anything about themselves. They are deceived. When the Bible says you shall not murder, it's not talking about putting a gun to someone's head. Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you have committed murder. Even if you're smiling on the outside... If you have hatred and resentment and bitterness in your heart, you have broken that commandment. Remember what Jesus said about adultery. Even to look on another person, to lust after them, is breaking the commandment against adultery. Even if you never jump into bed with somebody who is not your spouse, you can break the seventh commandment all in your mind. Because the commandments are not concerned solely with your actions, but with who you are. With your stony heart. Your hardened conscience. So this man doesn't understand his own need. He thinks he's doing well, but he's on his way to hell. And the claim he makes is simply absurd. He believes he's actually kept all the Ten Commandments. Now, even if you leave aside... What Jesus says about what's going on in our hearts, I guarantee you this man had not kept the Ten Commandments. This man had lied. This man had not honored his mother and father. This man perhaps at some point had stolen something. This man had coveted. And I without fear of contradiction, 
would say the same thing about each of you. And I'd say it about myself. I have done all of those things. I have broken the law of God. I have offended him. I have not kept the commandments from my youth. I probably haven't kept them today. That being the case, Jesus needs to tear away that facade of self-righteousness and show him the reality of his heart. So Jesus essentially says, okay, let's proceed. Let's proceed as if that ridiculous thing you just said is true. There's still one thing you lack. When it comes to going to heaven, it's not what we have that counts. It's what we lack. When you're talking about going to heaven, it's not what you've got. It's what you lack. And Jesus is going to show this man what he lacks. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Pay attention to those verbs. Sell, give, come, follow. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus ever said that to anyone as a condition of eternal life. This is the only time in the New Testament that anybody is told to sell all that they had, give it to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. So why does Jesus say it to this guy and to no one else? It's because Jesus knew here is the crux of this guy's problem. This guy looked so good on the outside, but he was totally controlled by the love of money. Jesus said to him, if you you want to be my follower, you're going to have to break the hold of money on your life. For this man, money was not just an object or a thing. Money had become his God, and Jesus knew it. And he goes right to that point at which this man's life was controlled. He goes to that thing in his life that would manifest to him his need. The need which he didn't know he had because he thought he kept the law from his youth. Jesus is saying to him, you're going to have to give up your idolatry of money before you can be my disciple. And brothers and sisters, that principle is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And we need to hear it again here in America. Where we love money. Where we worship the things that money can buy. Where we are trying so desperately to store up treasure on earth. You cannot love money and be his disciple. You cannot. He set the rules down 2,000 years ago. That's just the way it is. Jesus does not share his throne. God does not share his glory 
with anyone else, with other gods, or with the things that we make into gods. You know what the most hopeful thing in this story is to me? Verse 23 says that when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Which means the words of Jesus hit home. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And by the way, don't miss this. The man walks away and Jesus lets him go. This is the thing that always strikes me about this passage because it is so different from the way we usually react to people when we're trying to share the gospel with them. Jesus lets him go. Jesus doesn't run after him. Jesus doesn't negotiate. Jesus doesn't try to lower the standards of discipleship. He just told him the way it is. The man walks away and Jesus lets him go. Because Jesus does not negotiate. This is why Jesus tells us, hey, count the cost. If you're thinking about being my disciple, if you're thinking about following me, understand it's going to cost you. We share the gospel with people and we want to make it as palatable as possible. We want people to come away thinking, well, that's, that's, that's not too bad. Uh, okay, you know, eternal life and then this, as, all right. Sometimes... And, and this is kind of the tradition I came out of early in my Christian life. There's no cost at all. The gospel is presented as if it's not going to change anything. All you have to do is, is walk this aisle or pray this prayer, and then you're saved. And it doesn't matter if your life ever changes. Brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. If you hear someone proclaiming a gospel that does not include sin and repentance, that's not the gospel. But this is our inclination, right? Because we want people to love Jesus. That's a good thing. That's a right thing. That's a good desire for us to have. And we want to make it as easy as possible for people to do that. And so we do what Spurgeon warned us again. We start smoothing off the rough edges of the gospel. But Jesus never did that. Paul never did that. None of the apostles ever did that. You never see that happening in scripture. The gospel is what it is. And it doesn't change. We need to recognize who we are. We are fallen people. We are sinful people who have rebelled against a holy God. We have offended him and are under his wrath. That's what people don't want to hear. And so Paul is constantly saying, you know what? The gospel is intended to be an offense. Because the only way that people are going to respond to the gospel is if the Holy Spirit is working in them. Left to himself, 
what happens? The Jews are offended and the Gentiles think it's foolishness. But we preach the gospel anyway because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And God works through the proclamation of the gospel as he draws his people to himself. And so it's not a matter of us manipulating the gospel. It's not a matter of us trying to convince people and persuade them to come into the kingdom. The Holy Spirit does that. We proclaim what is true. And we seek to do it in a way which is, in fact, truthful. And we do it out of hearts of love and compassion for the lost. Because we want people to come to Christ. But if they're going to come to Christ, it will only be because the biblical gospel is proclaimed. Not because we've twisted it and made it into something that it's not just to get a response, which will not, in the end, be a saving response. The truth saves. Jesus understood that. And so when the man would not receive it, he lets him go. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard for someone whose heart is in bondage to money or anything else for that matter to enter into the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says in verses 24 and 25 how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, have you ever heard anyone explain this passage this way? By saying that you know, the eye of the needle is actually this gate right, in the wall of Jerusalem. And camels would come and they'd have to kneel down and kind of crawl through this gate to get inside the city. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what he's saying. He's not talking about a literal eye of the needle. His gate supposedly was called the eye of the needle. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking, well, in fact, he is talking about a literal camel. When he says the eye of the needle, he means the eye of a needle. The thing that you put thread through and then sew something with. I've done that once or twice in my life. Never very well. But that's what he's talking about. When he says camel, he means that big, old, smelly, ugly animal that they ride in the Middle East through the desert. And he says, look at a camel and look at the eye of a needle. It's easier to get this big, ugly camel through the eye of this tiny needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom. And you know that's what he's saying because of what he goes on to say in verse 27. You know it because of the question that the disciples ask in verse 26. Who can be saved then? They understand Jesus is talking about something that is impossible, not something that is difficult. 
not a camel getting down on its knees and crawling. That might be difficult for the camel, but it's not impossible. It's impossible for a full-size camel, any size camel for that matter, to get through the eye of a literal needle. That's impossible. And so the disciples understand that. And they ask, how then can anybody be saved? And Jesus answers, the things that are what? Not hard, not difficult. The things that are impossible with man are possible with God. It's impossible, Jesus says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. His disciples understood that point. And the message ought to be clear. Even rich people can be saved if they give up their trust in riches. But they're not going to do it on their own. They're not going to do it unless the Holy Spirit is at work in them to make that possible. Salvation is not a matter of your personal will. It is a matter of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Working through his word, through the gospel, to change your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That's what makes it possible. That is the impossible which God makes possible. Because we can't do it ourselves. You know, there are several times, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where you have this image of, of this heart transplant that takes place. Sometimes the heart, is, the heart of stone is taken out and it's replaced with a heart of flesh. Sometimes that heart of stone is transformed to a heart of flesh. The whole point, no matter how the image is put forth, is that we can't do it. We can't do it. You know, there are stories of people in, in dire situations who have performed some kind of surgery on themselves. Not a heart transplant. That's not going to happen. God needs to do that. And God does that. Even rich people can be saved, but they've got to stop trusting their riches. They've got to start trusting in Christ and Him alone. And the only person who can bring that about is not them, but God. Bill Self was a pastor for many years down in a big Baptist church in Atlanta. And he tells the story of his best friend whose son was killed in the crash of an F-14 airplane. And his friend once said to him, Bill, once you lose your son, you find out that there is no such thing as serious money. Life and death are serious. Money is not. When you stand before your creator, he's not going to judge you according to your financial portfolio. He's going to look for something much more substantial than that. It was Pascal who said there is a God-shaped vacuum inside the heart of every person. Now that doesn't mean that everyone is looking for the true God to fill that vacuum. In fact, the scripture tells us precisely the opposite. No one seeks after God. But everyone does try to fill that void with something. 
And if you do not fill that vacuum with God, you will fill it with something else. And when you do, you will find out what this rich young man found out centuries ago. You can have it all, but it's still not enough. One thing you lack. I come to two conclusions and then I'm through. Number one, as long as you make money and the things money can buy, the measure of your life, you will be empty and unfulfilled. Number two is this, whenever you stop trusting in money and the things that money can buy and you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, then and only then will your heart be satisfied. Otherwise, nothing will ever be enough. See, the amazing thing about the gospel is that the thing which we lack, God provides. When that rich young man heard Jesus say that there is one thing he lacks, his mind immediately went to what he had to do. His mind operated in such a way that his default position was, if I lack something, I have got to find a way to provide what I lack. But the gospel tells us we can't do that. Because none of us are righteous, none of us do anything good, none of us even seek after God. Just go back and read Romans 3, it's all there. So if we can't provide what we lack, what hope do we have? The hope is the gospel. God provides what we lack. The one thing that you lack, God offers to you now. The one thing you need is yours for the asking. The one thing that you have to have, the one thing that is indispensable, only God can give you. If you've discovered that having it all is not enough, then please consider something that money can't buy. A life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ is yours for the asking. Give up that which holds you in bondage. Because that's what's happening, you know. You think you're holding on to your money or whatever else you love more than Jesus, but the reality is, whatever that thing is, it's holding on to you. It holds you in bondage. You are captive to your stuff, to your career, by the control you think you exert over your life and perhaps the lives of others. You're, hold, you're not holding it. It's holding you. It's controlling you. It's got you in a death grip. Because that's what sin does. That's what idols do. Make no mistake. Whatever you love more than Jesus is an idol. It may even be something good. It's good to love your wife. It's good to love your kids. If you love them more than Jesus, they are idols. Jesus will have the preeminence. 
And if that is not something that you can do, Jesus is not going to give you another option. He will let you walk away. He will let you walk straight into hell. Because that is the other option. Come to Christ. Where there is freedom, there is liberty, there is joy, there is contentment, there is peace. Or hold on to whatever you love more than him. And you will grasp it all the way to hell. It's a bad deal. Father, we pray that you would even now be transforming hearts. Father, what an absurdity to hold on to the things of this world while marching into hell. When your grace is freely available. Father, only you can change hearts and minds. Do so, Father, by the power of the gospel today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.